Hi everyone, my name is Patrick Akil, and joining me today is my friend Pandanjot Singh. He has such a wealth and depth of knowledge when it comes to product vision, the payments domain, and content creation, which is a few of the topics we cover today. It was a pure joy learning from him, and I think you'll enjoy it too. Beyond coding. How did you find like-minded people to build up kind of your your connections here? Yeah, I think you as a person always need to stick to uh, certain traits you might have mm-hmm. uh, to to build that network yeah. right and for me it was always uh, about uh, finding people um, i can connect with through my writings and things that i write about speak about um, uh, write about on on social media etc and via that i get uh, a lot of connections as well ah. so so that was the de facto you you move me to any country in the world and that would be my de facto plan yeah. <laughs> to to start networking and to and to start meeting new people so so for me uh, uh when i started writing about the same time i mean i was writing before but not like professionally or out there on social media platforms so that i started doing about two and a half three years back and that for me uh, led to a lot of connections in the product world and the product community in europe is building up quite well i mean mm-hmm. there there are few hubs uh, there's a berlin uh, as a hub is uh, is growing amsterdam as a hub is growing zurich as a hub is growing growing so you find these hubs across uh, europe where the product and tech community is is growing a lot and that's what i started connecting to mm-hmm. uh, so that was my first sort of a circle but it's not a very close circle right yeah. so it's it's just set of uh, professionals who love to talk talk about product and tech the the second network uh, obviously comes in uh, via uh, the company that you work for mm. so when i when i came to amsterdam i joined uh, booking.com and that has an immense uh, sort of uh, i mean it's headquartered and everyone is required to work out of amsterdam most of their product and tech folks yeah. so that was my first uh, closer network people with which i spend most days and you could also spend weekends and and be together to to you know explore restaurants or be uh, throw home parties or stuff like that so so that was my second uh, let's say more closer network and then i think eventually you figure out the people with which you want to sort of you know uh, stay in touch and keep keep meeting them and keep figuring out what to do next so that that basically was the addition to, uh, for me yeah. over a period of time yeah that makes sense i yeah. feel like i've heard this before that people that create content whether it's video form content or like written form content when they go to a country they already kind of know people there i think that's such a cool like cheat code it's like a life hack basically it is it yeah. is and and this is what digital uh, unlocks for you right yeah. i would say that anyone who's exploring i would say countries or even uh, their own city i mean cities are big nowadays right i mean there's so much happening in a in a single city especially in the metropolitan so if you're out there speaking about what you like i mean not even content creation if you simply post about what you think what you like what you do you can attract people uh in the similar location that might be interested in meeting or knowing more and you can always reach out to them so yeah so digital unlocks uh, uh, immense networking opportunities yeah i think so too yeah, yeah. i want to get into the the content creation side but before we do that i think i just want to put a pin on that because leading up to that i want to learn about how you got into kind of product strategy product vision stuff mm-hmm. like that yeah. i feel like the people that i've worked with that have those responsibilities their background usually varies in how they got to positions like that in the first place yeah. it might be yeah. a project lead uh, yeah. from a technical point of view a project manager from a program oriented yeah. side or yeah. even a, a ba side like a business analyst yeah. how is yeah. that for you yeah you're right i think and also anything to do with strategy doesn't have very defined roles even when people get into it mm. uh, they might be uh, approaching strategy from a business perspective from a tech perspective from an operations or marketing perspective i mean you can have you can fit strategy word to anything and it it makes sense you can yeah. have a marketing strategy you can have a tech strategy right so you're right that the roles are not defined once you get into it uh but i would say when someone gets into it generally mm. that's decided by whatever the scope of your work is how how high are the stakes mm. of your work what are the risks that are involved uh with the kind of work that you do yeah because if if you are in a market which is changing very fast or your clients are changing very fast you need to have a plan that's that's only you know uh, we are all wired 
in a way to have a plan mm-hmm. that may be like three months into the future. What should we do over the next six months? And as you take up bigger, uh, more uh, riskier roles in the sense that you take more ownership of uh, what would happen over the next few months, and that can come from project management, from even a senior developer or a tech lead, or that can be from product manager. You need to have a long-term plan about what's going to happen over the next twelve months or eighteen yeah. months, and and strategy is is a word that you can fit into uh, these long-time horizon thinking, and that's what strategy is, right? So, and that's why you, I mean, they're they're re- rarely roles uh, which are specifically called strategy roles, but you do strategy on the side while you do your main role. Right? Yeah. So, so I think strategy as a way of thinking should be. something that everyone should try to sharpen and and see how they can also think long term while they're doing the short term things yeah did it yeah. did it grow for you organically this way as well where you got more and more responsibilities and started thinking of a longer term horizon yeah uh my experiences actually started from um, i was working for this company called gojek uh, uh which is a big uh, southeast asian uh, super app yeah uh, uh competing with grab and also supported by a lot of these chinese investments now uh what eventually happened was i was uh, in product management roles and and growing in those product management roles and i ended up owning a domain mm. which had a huge impact on the company depending on the direction it takes yeah and i knew that i could no longer have um, a non strategic view on what the team should do next What domain was that? So this is uh, this is a super app, right? So so uh, you could book uh, transportation, you could book, you can order food. Yeah. Uh, you can do payments all in a single app. Mm. So uh, imagine if if a lot of these fintech and uh, the Ubers and the Bolts and all came together and built a single app, so kind of like that. So it's a huge sort of a thing in ha- all happening I- at the palm of your hand. Wow. Um, and the domain for me was to enable uh, payments for all of these services. So when you take a cab. from location a to location b how do you pay mm. uh, for that cab and you have a lot of options which are more specific to let's say preferences of southeast asian customers so a, a thailand is so different from indonesia and so different from singapore okay uh, so i was in the payments domain uh, and um, and that's when i figured out that since the stakes are so high i mean payments is something which you should not worry about as a as a as a customer yeah if you have to worry about cus- your your pay- your payments that's mean that means the product uh, did not do a good job of it right it should be seamless it should almost be invisible yeah uh, when you try to do payments right it should be just something that you do subconsciously it if, should be that easy yeah if that doesn't work <laughs> my whole trust goes down the yeah, drain yeah exactly yeah. so so and and that's when i started seriously thinking about the long term aspects of what decisions we take okay uh, uh, while uh, building these payment solutions in the app so if somebody is taking a cab just to take an example and you offer them two options one is to pay instantly and the other option is that maybe that person takes too many cabs in a day because he or she is uh, is traveling from office to home every day taking uh, a car ride then they might not want to pay every single time uh, because uh, they're traveling too much maybe they want to pay once at the end of the month so you could just club all of your bills into a single bill and let them pay by the end of the month yeah and these two kind of customers are very different the ones who want to pay instantly and the ones who want to club everything towards the end of the month and it's it's about convenience and seamlessness now how do you as as a product team as a tech team design things in a way that you can cater to these very different needs yeah and then there are implications on your infrastructure your security your network um, what platforms you build what experiences you build and and, and it just becomes uh, not so easy <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> i get that it it can it can become complex very soon and that's where my first uh, let's say seriously thinking about what should be the strategy if we do this what is going to be the reaction of the market of the competition of the regulator and so on and so forth uh and that makes it multidimensional that makes it complex uh but also you need to learn on the go mm-hmm. you you cannot have answers uh, so so you need to know you need to know just enough in your strategic process to try out things yeah but not so much that you think you have a perfect plan so s- somewhere in between and that's that's the strategic thinking part yeah i uh 
I love strategic thinking. And even now, I think that product vision, product ownership is something that interests me. It, it, yeah. it always has, kind of from a creator perspective, from a software engineer perspective in that team. As I hear your story, for me, the stakes sound very high because yeah. you're in a huge company. Payment is the most crucial part, as you say. If it's not seamless, people lose trust in the whole the whole brand recognition and the image can go down and down because of that. And then you come into a position where you say, okay, we have to experiment, we have to try things out. You're probably also learning on the go. How was it within that environment when the stakes were that high? Yeah. Uh, I think it's 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 something that everyone learns in their careers, mm. right? I don't think there is a book which, which tells you what to do when stakes are high. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I haven't found a leader as well or mm. a mentor who can say exactly what to do in such situations. Because to be honest, there is no one size fit all in, in different kind of situations. And it, it sort of varies. And that's what makes it interesting and challenging at the same time. Yeah. yeah. What works in one company and that's where a lot of this experience bias comes in. So you you saw some things working at one company and you go to the second company and nothing works. Mm. Whatever you learned. Yeah. Yeah. Because the company is different, the market is different, the customers are different. And that's why I I I wish I had one answer. But to me, the uh it 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 lies in some sort of a framework you should have in a mind. Yeah with more than one possibilities of the possible outcomes, right? So in 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 the experience that I talked about for Gojek, it was always about, I can do it uh, two ways. Either I invest so much into upfront research that I have the strongest hypotheses about what can work or not. Yeah, yeah. they're almost always valid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then that upfront research is also... Uh, a craft in itself how much research what are you trying to validate yeah till what extent do you want to validate you cannot validate it too much so you run out of time in the market and you cannot validate too too less uh, otherwise your hypotheses may not be strong so that's one way to do it and i would say companies with great market research and customer research cultures mostly go for this approach where it, they, they try to come up with the strongest hypotheses to through research, research and validation yeah. And then those hypotheses can become your strategic bets, for example. The other approach that I've seen in companies which do not have strong market and customer research in-house is experimentation. Mm. So you may not know which hypotheses are strong or weak. Uh, I mean, you always have a hunch or you may have some anecdotes and, you know, there's always some senior person telling that I know what the market is. <laughs> so yeah. so you, I know. <laughs> you, can, you can get it, right? You can get it what you can try out in the market, let's say. Yeah. So the second approach is more about experimentation in which you literally throw out your best two or three ideas into the market and see the traction over the first few months or weeks, depending on what kind of product and market it is. And then you figure out, is it going in a positive direction? from a metric perspective or is it going in a neutral or a negative direction? Then you decide to stop or scale or pivot. And and this experimentation approach requires a good infrastructure you should have on experimentation side, yeah, yeah? like A-B testing or whatever it is. And, uh, uh, and there, there are companies in between. I've taken two extremes. So good in customer research and market research. The second one is experimentation. Then there are companies in between who do a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I so when I join a company, I first look at where where is this company on this spectrum, yeah, and then what what can I try out without overloading the system with like new tools and stuff and start throwing what I learned in the previous company. So I try to avoid that yeah. and just see what what are the strengths of this company, how can I build it. I like that a lot. Yeah, I think from my personal history, I've always been more so involved with companies that did not have kind of strong market research to build up strong formulated hypotheses. Yeah. And also from the implementation point of view, I, I have been in projects where we built up the experimentation yeah. uh, in so much so that we could do that and then also be part of, for example, building features and then testing them out. The yes. struggle I've seen there, and also I think this is just personal bias that is in there, is okay, you, you always have a preference for a certain outcome, right? Yeah. And if then the data sways towards a different yeah. outcome, you might be like, okay, is this the technical implementation? Did we do it right? Did we set up the experiment yeah. right? Or am I just wrong? <laughs> yeah. And mostly that last part is hard to acknowledge sometimes. It is, it is. 
and you know i think uh, being in companies with strong experimentation culture has taught me one thing mm. which is um, you are most you are i mean you if, even if you do not do any experimentation and let's say you have no customer research you have a probability of 50% to be right or wrong yeah. let's just assume that right <clears throat> and in the companies where i was doing a lot of experimentation which was in gojek and and booking.com more than 50% of experiments actually failed mm yeah technical reasons or maybe the, it's a wrong sample that we rolled out the experiment to or the product or the feature the hypothesis was wrong i mean there there's so many reasons as you as you rightly said but it taught me that if i'm more than 50% wrong in companies where i'm experimenting i should be really careful in companies where i'm just relying on on uh, non experimentation techniques yeah uh, because without experimentation you tend to have uh, some sort of confidence in in your in your thoughts and ideas and beliefs and i i uh, i'm i'm now just more careful uh, when i'm trying out things in companies with uh, let's say less experimentation focus but more research focus yeah yeah I, so I it teaches you a bit <laughs> i think that's a fantastic insight yeah. yeah i yeah. i wouldn't have guessed that even with a strong experimentation culture that you'd be wrong like kind of 50, yeah. like 50% sounds yeah, <laughs> yeah makes sense yeah. but that's often actually yes that's, yeah that's true so i mean it uh, it just tells you about you know it's it's uh, this this whole product and tech is is uh, uh, not so easy uh, and ideas have become commodity in mm. a way everyone has ideas but who has more successful ideas that can work out is is where the real thing is and that's why we are all working together to make things happen right so Yeah so th- that's that's an insight from from an experimentation driven culture yeah Yeah I love that yeah. when you touched on those ideas how do you come up with those ideas is that you and kind of a strategy team or who do you involve yeah from that yeah. idea kind yeah. of incubation yeah i think uh i i see this as different phases of uh, uh where your product is mm. um if you if you take all the products in your company uh depending on if you're building it for your company or for a client you can almost map your products on some sort of a product stage yeah yeah so you could have early stage products that are that do not have product market fit you can have growth stage products that have a product market fit and are getting traction or you can have products in like highly mature stage right where you know it's going to get tougher because uh, the market might be saturated or the competition may be too high the margins are too low or the product is not selling right yeah and in these three different stages you they're very different approaches to get ideas and and you one has to be really careful if 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 you do not take into account the stage of the product and start consolidating ideas without considering the stage of the product you can actually end up in a situation where uh you're asking your uh, uh, strategy team or your internal stakeholders for ideas for product that doesn't have a product market fit because in those case the ideas have to come from the customers and clients and their interactions with your product yeah yeah but if it's a mature product where you already know how customers react to it and they have been years of building that product over there ideas can come internally as well in terms of what can we do with this product next do mm-hmm. we modify it do we change it do we shut it down what do we do with it so one has to be careful with the stage of the product now if i take example of the early stage product with no product market fit uh that's where uh the ideas should mostly come from the market and the interactions of uh, your customers with your product and that's where the idea should come from so customer interviews spend as much time in the market understanding which clients which customers how do they interact with your product if it's a digital direct to consumer product then how do consumers interact with your app yeah uh what do they like what do they engage with and and retention is probably the biggest metric in in an early stage product so you have to find what makes people come back mm-hmm. rather than what makes people use the app because the first this is easier i mean you can always throw incentives to, for people to use the app but what makes them come back yeah and that's where you should search for more ideas are you directly involved kind of in that research i think if you're in product you should find out time to be involved in the research yeah um however i also know it's not always easy because it depends on how the company is wired and what the culture of the company is but let's say if you were thinking of an ideal situation 
I think I I would even say that the tech and the designers should also get involved on what uh, what is the customer behavior and just to understand a little bit more as a team. Yeah. Yeah. And get involved on those customer research elements more and more so that the next time you're building it we talked about the 50% success rate. So uh let's not be a team which is throwing a dice let's be a team that knows what number will come up when we throw the dice yeah be predictable yeah, yeah. yeah. be more predictable and that would happen if if in an early stage product you are spending more time with customers okay and it and this can change a bit if if the product is high maturity product then you could be uh, getting ideas in different ways yeah for example and then from those more mature products in different product phases yeah do you then spend as much time kind of being glued to a customer or, or what else Do yeah, you do there. I think I think as as the product becomes more mature at least the assumption is that you have worked on that product for for years or you know a long a, a fairly long period of time yeah. that you understand your customers uh, their behaviors quite well. Mm. That that's an assumption that you always take in mature products and that's what I see when I when I join a company as well. Uh, and in those cases you you do not need to invest into uh customer research as in going into interviews and focus group discussions yeah because hopefully in your company you should already be getting daily real time data on how customers uh what are the customer complaints so what are the top 3 customer complaints i mean that should already be with your customer service team mm. for a mature product yeah. and, and and long enough data you would already know what the competition is doing so you know which features are are competing which are not competing which are not doing well for example yeah so in a mature product this is more about uh, observing the data making sense of the data and then acting on the data whereas for early stage you do not have data so you spend more time with customers yeah and in mature uh, products if the data quality is good and you're getting the data in the right manner that can be a good proxy to understand customers Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I I always thought this might be the case, but it's very much reliant on any information you can get, right? Any data that, that you have. And if you don't have the data, you go close to the source, which is your customer. Yes. And you start talking to them to get any form of data. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's qualitative and then once you have a bulk of customers that's willing to pay, you have that product market fit, then you can rely on more the numbers, right? That yes. quantitative data. exactly and and this is what happens in really really large scale companies uh once you become a company of a size of i don't know 5000 10000 20000 um employees yeah of course you'll have customer interviews being done but for majority of the products you have to rely on the data insights mm. because you you might be serving thousands or 100000 or millions of customers yeah just the scale and because of the scale uh you have opportunity to get data from so many sources so that may be your app uh, store you that may be your uh, reviews that people leave on sites or your customers i mean there's so many sources that you should probably have a good infrastructure to to get the insights from that data but it's not so easy as i'm saying it because it's very difficult to collect data in the right manner and then clean it up uh, to make sense out of it right so i know it's not easy but that should be a general approach for yeah. for mature products yeah yeah if that's the vision then let's yeah. see how we can get yes. there Yes. Yeah. Have right. you also find yourself found yourself in an organization where kind of these information processes regardless of the project product phase were not in place and where you had to strongly advocate for guys this is this is basically what we need to do our job to do my job basically yeah. in a correct manner. Yeah. This is what we need. Yeah. I would say uh companies who right from the early days did not think of investing into data pipelines data infrastructures the the whole uh, framework that you need did struggle towards later years mm. and if companies end up implementing those exercises towards later part of their uh, uh, later part of their um, uh, uh, timeline then becomes really difficult to do that so to your question i would say i've seen more companies struggling uh, with making sense of the data not because they're not getting data but they never planned things in a way early enough to know in in what format in what sense and how should we get the data yeah and is it clean data or is it uh, unclean data uh, and a lot of companies are just spending time in parsing the data cleaning the data etc because in the early days they just thought they they should get some uh, customer things over email or over uh, some sort of customer service platform but they never planned it that 
maybe someday this data might be useful for us so again so i think now the companies are becoming more um, aware about the fact that data is uh, literally the gold mine yeah so when you start building a project or a product you start thinking about setting up the right data infrastructure right from day one mm-hmm. but a lot of companies that have been around for let's say you know uh, uh, more than a decade or even you know 40 50 years the big ones for them it is really difficult to do it now yeah they're playing catch up yeah yeah they're playing catch up and there's no other way around they cannot yeah. stop playing catch up Yeah. So so it's about managing uh, how much do you invest time into uh, those elements versus the other elements which is right related to uh, you know uh, your regular business and growth topics etc. Yeah. yeah. Yeah it's interesting because both sides have then an interesting challenge from playing catch up it's hard to play catch up you're behind and you have to have pillars in place and you have probably a huge amount of data because you've been established for a long long time. Yeah. And then from just starting up you want to start up and you want to do a lot so then what is the balance in between doing enough yeah. and not doing too much because doing too much might slow you down like yeah. that's a hard one yeah yeah it is and this is where you know uh, uh, a lot of these investments are going into your transformation activities digital transformation etc uh and you know some companies take the route of and sort of and uh, trying to acquire if there is already something that's out there that can help them streamline things faster yeah. rather than building it in house i mean the decisions eventually come down to two things right how much are you able to sacrifice or balance uh for the perceived benefits you might get out of uh, this whole exercise of data cleanup etc versus not doing that and continue to invest in your uh, products and services. Yeah. And this balance is exactly the reason that uh, uh the management and uh, the team members I would say even for product teams they should have a plan and which in over a long time becomes the strategy, right? Because if you're investing in your infrastructure let's say over the next 6 to 12 months, you know it comes at a cost. Mhm. Yeah. and the cost is you might lose out on the way market is going a competition is catching up and that's a cost yeah and as long as you put all of these on the table and say okay these are the trade offs we are willing to take as a company yeah that is what is uh, called strategy right strategy is what lets you act in the right manner yeah and that's why i always keep going back to these uh, product strategy discussions because exactly what you asked uh, these things are not easy uh for for anyone to take decision and and you know we humans are wired in a way that we think about our existence in the company how to optimize it and we we do not often optimize for the organization's lifetime because mm. organizations can have have a longer lifetime i mean they can go beyond your career absolutely yeah yeah so who in the company is thinking for the lifetime of the organization uh when you know most of the uh people in the company are mostly optimizing for their own careers yeah so if you have someone who who thinks i want to spend uh, four or three years or five years in the company they're optimizing for that kind of a uh, thinking yeah mostly i used to pay out for themselves and that is the biggest uh, i would say uh, dilemma that uh, leadership always has right how do you make sure that people think for close to the lifetime of the company rather than the lifetime of their careers in the company yeah and this is the the biggest uh, trade off right If in terms of how you build your employees how do you train them etc yeah very interesting yeah. i think it, if it is a win win that is the best scenario because then it yeah. goes hand in hand yeah. in a yeah. way and the funny thing is from a software perspective just by virtue of doing pull requests and putting information in kind of the history yeah. in a yeah. log yeah I do that for myself. I do that for my team and the people that come after me. Yes. And that is a very much structured approach of making yourself kind of obsolete and then having enough information for the people that follow to understand what happened in the past. Absolutely. And and you know, I I was reading uh, a few days back about, you know, uh, some some articles on strategy and innovation and there was an interesting fact um to what you said also around, you know, how to make things easier for others that come after you. Yeah. So in in 1955, uh, if you look at the uh, Fortune 500 companies list, 90% of them do not exist today. Mm. So 10% of those companies exist, 90% uh, do not. Yeah. 
and now if you just extrapolate that to today's uh, let's say the top companies and you can do it by region or just look at fortune 500 let's just assume that 90% of those will not exist in next 50 years yeah wow that's and that, that's that's a big fact and what happens to those 90% companies you have a great team you have a great leadership you're all bright minds you're thinking about strategy and still 90% of companies stop existing i mean either they get bought out or they get shut down or whatever something happens to those companies and this is a great uh, learning uh, to say that uh over our lifetime uh, and and the careers that we invest into right uh the market is always overtakes uh, a bit of what you think uh, you're doing versus what the organization is thinking because market has existed long enough and then market changes even faster today than it existed 50 years back yeah so uh the point that you mentioned coming back to that point small things like documentation i mean should we do documentation this is such a small point for a leadership uh, to discuss but if the leadership is really concerned about the lifetime of the organization they should emphasize documentation Absolutely. for all teams yeah because if you're building an organization for 20 30 50 60 years whatever it may be uh, beyond your lifetime you should put in practices in place like documentation uh, for 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 different teams and different roles as as a signal to the company that we care about the lifetime of this organization yeah yeah, yeah interesting i i didn't know that statistic and then even then knowing that statistic could influence kind of your role in a company right because if you have the mindset of all right in 30 years this company is not going to yeah. be this company is going to be different then yes. you might act completely different it's, based it's, on that it's very different right yeah and and again nobody can predict the future so we are really saying your we are really uh, um, talking about the mindset over here right yeah so your mindset would change and then you do things which uh, in a meeting you might argue about but now if you if you think about long enough they just make sense uh because uh, because of the 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 v- to make a sustainable business out of the current company there's some practices you need to do yeah yeah i can imagine is that also why you've kind of been focused on staying within this payment domain because payments as a domain are across organizations right yes. it's an interesting complex domain and it's complex also by region by yeah. organization how we do it here and that kind of like a life skill you carry with you as you go throughout your career yeah yeah i i've been on this side where i've stuck to a domain uh, for a long time of of course in different geographies and different kind of companies and i've also got friends and colleagues who have changed companies and domains every few years yeah and while i see the benefit of the other side as well now speaking to them because now they experience multiple domains and they 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 become more generalistic in their problem solving approach mm-hmm. uh, rather than more specific to a domain yeah uh, so i do see advantages on the other side as well but from my point of view uh i think you have to eventually find out what problems are you solving for the end consumers which are humans at the end of the day yeah so payments is something which will uh, never go essentially right money is going to be a key part of you know uh, exchanging value with products and services buying things etc yeah and payments can take so many shapes and forms i mean look at the last few years right uh, we the digitization of payments uh, is something that we've all seen some yeah. countries are leading uh, some countries are still catching up with respect to digitization so that's one aspect of payments and that in itself is a very interesting uh, depending on your role and which geography you are in when i was in uh, uh, in southeast asia uh indonesia and i was you know that time surprise rate was the fourth it it is the fourth biggest company uh, country in the world with respect to population and the and the uh, the opportunities it has uh, for digitization of payments mm-hmm. and the and the issue for those consumers was access to finances yeah well wow. yeah so credit demand is big uh but there are no institutions that can give credit to uh, consumers small credit i'm talking talking about small credit right not not uh, big uh, mortgages and stuff like that uh and any products that you build that can give access to credit small credit over a short period of time uh was a big win in those countries now when i moved to um uh, uh the netherlands and of course i'm 
working across multiple countries in in the Europe, uh, access to finances is not a not a problem. The problem is about convenience, how seamless it yeah. should be, and is it available when I need it, and should not be too interfering in my daily life. Yeah, which is completely the opposite of uh, of many of these Southeast Asian uh, consumers. So payments is just a vehicle. for me to think about how different people and humans interact with their you know with their payments and what they do on a daily basis uh and and i feel that you know money is something which is always central to our behavior yeah even if we do not talk about it i think we are all driven by certain things which you know how can i get most value out of my money how can i save the most or whatever maybe idea so i think it has the payments domain has helped me with a lot of insights into how people think Yeah, in different geographies, and yeah. that's 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 been a great uh, learning for me, and I'm that's why I've been sticking to it, I guess, for a long time. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear that what can be challenging in a region or a set of countries is like in abundance over at yeah. other countries, yeah. and then all of a sudden you go to kind of subsequent challenges because of that. Yes, or how do you become an outlier and then kind of out outperform your competition in that yes. way? But for me, and from kind of a strategic point of view. you are very valuable within the payments domain because you bring the diversity not only within payments but also from organizations right and you have that depth that is okay this was challenging here this is in abundance here those learnings might still be applicable in then kind of distinguishing yourself yeah i yeah. think i'm not sure if that is unique to kind of a product leadership role because for me from a software engineering point of view like i've i've had a lot of experience in e-commerce mm. but e-commerce for me i've kind of done that so i i want to do other things as well and learn from mm-hmm. that maybe it comes into kind of the people you talk to yeah. with a more generalistic mindset yeah but i i'm not sure if from a software from a creation point of view the domain might be diverse enough or have that depth as you have from a kind of a visionary strategic point of view yeah yeah and and that's where i would say that uh, it just depends on at what level are you contributing to the field in a way yeah uh, so and you're absolutely right right like the set of technical challenges uh, that existed in e-commerce world let's say have mostly been solved or at least you know there is a solution yeah. rather than it you know you don't have to invent stuff anymore and now e-commerce is getting automated so much with these platforms uh, so it's moving in a certain direction right yeah uh, and then as 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 a software developer you would then move to new challenges that might uh, exist in other domains for example right and and that's where one one unique thing about product is that there are two variations of product people that i've seen one who are more tech aligned mm. who like to work with the uh, uh, software developers think technically also think about scalability reliability and all of that stuff so they're more tech minded product managers yeah but i'm also seeing a change where now a lot of software developers are becoming more product thinkers yeah that's a good uh, change i think I, so yeah yeah but then i also see a shift in the roles of product managers uh, now they are expected to be more market oriented mm. because if engineers are moving towards more product mindedness then product managers are now expected to become more market oriented yeah and that is Uh, I would say that in in my last six to seven years, I've seen or experienced personally the more second kind of product roles myself. Okay, I've been doing that, where a lot of my uh, technical team members were aware enough about uh, the the problems at hand and how to solve them with with some some help and guidance wherever needed. Yeah, but then I thought my responsibility is no more to to. you know a guide technical team members on what to build because they're they're smart enough and that's the change that i see in their roles now mm. and i have to make sure i understand the market the competition well enough yeah uh, so that there's an external view and there's an internal view into what we are building yeah and and that is where uh, the uh, the product managers are now getting closer to market and uh, the business uh, outcomes Mm. rather than uh, the technical outcomes of their products a bit and 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 that's where to, to your question i think that has been the biggest reason that domain has uh, become so important for product people whereas for software developers the domain is important but not as much as the product people because the product people are becoming more external focus focused towards the market whereas 
the software developers are focusing more towards the uh, let's say within a certain boundaries of uh, product complexity they can operate quite well yep. as long as they know what needs to be solved that's yeah, an so interesting it's, it's a bit of a nuance in how the market is evolving now yeah i think that's yeah. a, a very interesting insight and it might also explain kind of the the ranges and experiences of of product owners and product managers that i've worked with yeah. because uh, to your point i have worked with product owners that were very much focused on the technical nuances yeah. sometimes to their demise as well <laughs> where they where they were anchored in a solution and, yeah. and it turned out to be different yeah. and yeah. Then it's very hard because of that kind of tie to technology yes and then more so as of late i've worked with product owners and product managers that give a lot of product choice freedom to the team yes that are like okay i i also want you to understand the customer right but because of that the product might be better at the end of this and this is my area of expertise yeah, yeah. and for these things i trust you for these things i provide the info and together we do this yeah yeah and i think that's that's really cool to yeah, see that yeah. that involvement yes it, it's a change that's happening now also uh, with the, all of the the books and the authors and you know th- that's the kind of culture that's being encouraged in general product building yeah. uh, nowadays and to be honest i think it's a it's a it's quite a good change uh, and i think it's just on the willingness of product owners and software developers to then adopt that change that change is available but how comfortable are you to adopt that change yeah that has that is also not easy because uh, i've i've also seen product owners who love to own the technical not own but they want to be a big contributor to uh, technical decisions yeah uh, and i've also seen software developers who feel too comfortable in just building the tech part of it and leave the customers and market to the product people so as long as you're able to get out of the comfort zone both sides from product and tech yeah uh, then this new kind of evolution of product and tech roles is what we are seeing because people are getting out of that comfort zone now yeah i think from a from my perspective from a tech perspective is easy to gain an area of interest into how what you're building is being used and how yes. to then do that more effectively yeah yeah i think and this might be my assumption from a product perspective if you've always been kind of involved in more so the technical side to go more high over and to think about strategically what is the market what is our domain what are our competitors doing yeah. like that abundance of information some people might not know where to start when that is all of a sudden kind of the evolvement of their role yes yes i think that might be challenging yeah yeah and and there's no textbook for for you know a lot of engineering leaders that i've worked with i mean they they might not have seen that change but now yeah. the, the now we are changing seeing that change so there's no textbook or or an onboarding where you can now start making sense of this the, the customers and the market so and and i completely see where you're coming from because that that is that is complex even for product managers and product owners when you ask them to empower your team yeah what does that mean yeah right and and i see this word i mean there are a lot of words now being thrown around <laughs> empowerment and stuff but what does it mean yeah can you put some tangible steps to it can you put some tangible ideas and iterations to it and and i would love to see uh, i mean there are a lot of great product authors who have tried to do that quite well mm. so not taking anything away from them but i've seen that uh, companies have gotten into this um, issue of saying we need to empower our teams but they think empowerment means letting people um uh, throwing problems at people and letting them solve it yeah which is never helpful uh because you need to give them context you need to tell them overall what direction we are going as a company and what are things we will do and not do yeah give them some decision making framework and then you know talk about empowerment or whatever that means in the company and the problem is a lot of companies throw empowerment because they just want people to work out things on their own yeah uh, without giving them the decision making framework and that's always uh, makes it so complex yeah yeah i love that empowerment needs to be facilitated by the environment yes and provided through information and kind of processes or at least enough processes to to allow yeah. for empowerment to happen yeah. in that way yeah. right it's a it's kind of a how do you say that i don't know how you say that it needs mm. to the ground needs to be yeah fertile <laughs> fertile yeah i, I yeah. had dutch like yeah, dutch yeah, spread no, <laughs> no yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. yeah for mm. for like mm. stuff to grow in that yes, way i yes. think that's a great analogy yes, yes uh, true i love learning about kind of your depth within this field but from a domain perspective as well as from a kind of roles and responsibility perspective and i know 
you have a newsletter, you write about the content. Is that like correlated in a way? Did it get stronger, your your knowledge also through kind of research and creating? And mm. How did you start creating content in the first place? Maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah. I think uh, I would say that I, I've been uh, part of this uh, two different uh, patterns that I saw in, in the social media world, right? Where uh, it was initially a lot about your personal stuff and career and stuff like that. And then start pe- people start putting ideas about their how they think about certain domains or certain uh, uh, skill sets, etc. Yeah. I mean, if we just go de- a decade back, we'd, we were not seeing so much content creation happening. Although, I mean, people had always had great ideas, but they d- just were not comfortable putting ideas onto social medias, Agreed. social media platforms, right? Yeah. Uh, and then something changed over the last five to seven years, I would say, where people started actively coming out, publishing on different platforms and stuff like that. And what I predict going forward is uh, um, I think everyone to some percentage needs to be a content creator as as a skill set in general. Mm. And I'm not talking about like um, uh, starting a newsletter or stuff like that. I think if you are serious about creating your brand and, and creating, uh, uh, attracting the right set of people, uh, you need to start putting out something out there in the world. Mm. And today... The world is digital, so the the only means is to start doing it digitally. So you can do things within your company, but to to let the world know how you think, you should. I think everyone needs to be a content creator in the future. Maybe just the percentages have to be different. Somebody just spends 1% of their time, some spends 50% of their time, but people have to start putting ideas out there a bit. Mm. Um, Why is that? Yeah, I, I think... Now going back to the question which which you asked about, about when did I start and how do how did I start content creation? Yeah, I think eventually you need a bit of sparring and brainstorming about do I think the right way, mm. and if I think the right way, do people also acknowledge it or do people also agree with it or they disagree with it? And if you're getting into more complex domains or let's say complex uh, problems within your skill set, uh, one way for you to get your brainstorming and sparring uh, or intellectual uh, enlightenment, let's say, is within your company. That's, yeah. that's the simplest one. And I would say that if you're working in a great company, maybe that's it. You you get all your ideas from within the company. You discuss them. You always learn more. You have a great environment then you just need to be a content creator inside your company. Mm. You don't need to put it out on the social media, which means that you should be actively involved in whatever communities are there within your company, uh, whatever, um, you know, sessions that you can do for, for your, uh, uh, you know, your team, your leadership, et cetera, on specific skill sets that you have. So, so I, I also mean content creation in the sense that within your company as well. So not only, only on social media. Yeah. But if, for whatever reason, you might not be able to get that intellectual enlightenment inside your company. Then the second way is to get outside of of this uh, zone that you have. And that can be uh, being part of communities within your city, for example, communities uh, that you can build, uh, if not in the same location, then probably um, finding communities that, uh, that connect people across the globe. Yeah. And then... The the third one is obviously you start you can start publishing. So these are the different percentages or different levels of content creation and content absorption that you can do. Yeah. My problem if somebody is not doing that at, at all, even within the company, let's start with that, is that are they thinking enough about their domain and skill sets? Mm. Because if somebody is not uh, actively brainstorming and sparring about, hey, are we doing the right thing? Did we launch the right feature? Hey, this this happened with the last feature, so maybe we learned something. We should try it now. I mean, everyone is trying to, uh, in a way, brainstorm and spar about what's the best outcome we can get as a company. Yeah, yeah. And for me, the reason I started content writing was I eventually had to get out of my network, and I had to learn more to mm. be successful in my roles. Yeah, it came to a point where I. Where I, where I thought that, okay, the kind of problems we are facing in the company or the kind of problems I want to solve in the future, I'll not get enough just from my network. I need to start writing. I need to, uh, I need to 
put it out there in the world to be criticized that's completely fine yeah or to be agreed or acknowledged so that i have a feedback loop about am i thinking in the right way am i not thinking so that's how i started writing although it it has changed a bit and we can go through the journey now <laughs> but it, you i always start writing to put it out there in the world uh and and get a feedback on am i thinking in the right manner interesting yeah and you also mentioned you you were writing before you put it out in the world right so you were already in that kind of content yeah. creation mindset and yes. i think people have a connotation when it comes to content creation that it's very much tied to putting it out on the internet yeah. for others to yeah. see yeah. yeah but i think it's it's about the essence and quality of information right yes. yes i was thinking you said there's this trend that it's like 5 to 7 years ago and content has been more so online nowadays than it was before and i was thinking why that is and one of my thoughts brought me to maybe it's maybe it's the information abundance mm. that stuff has been more established nowadays and there's a numerous amount of information so then people look to okay mm. where's the quality right where i can find where can i find depth yes outside of kind of this ocean of information where are my little golden nuggets that are going to bring me far either within my personal life or my career yeah and that might be why people were creating that cuz yeah. i think it might be demand based yeah no you you touched upon a great point right i mean everything that works out in this world is always a balance of supply and demand yeah content creation would not work out if there was no demand as simple as that if you if you look at the two sides of supply and demand the readers are looking for high quality information yeah. and there's a lot of noise uh, right now in in content creation mm-hmm. right there are people just writing some recycled stuff and the people who are writing original stuff yeah so there's a lot of noise and readers are looking for quality so there is demand people want to learn more they want to learn better and now the learning has shifted away from that i go do a university course in the middle of my um, job to can i on a frequent basis absorb little bit new information or meaningful information so as to keep learning on the go yeah and people are looking for good information right so there's demand on the supply side um content creation has now become a bit uh competitive i would say yeah so when i started writing uh that was 3 years back 3 years is not a long time if you if you look at the overall horizon but 3 years uh, things changed so much in product and tech when when i started writing there were hardly uh, let's say one to two fellow product writers who were really doing it yeah um on on a scale and pushing it out on social media and stuff i was also doing that uh and now that has gone up by 5x i i see around 14 to 15 uh content writers really putting it out there and you know i may be missing out on half others because yeah. they're just not part of my network so this it has be- become more competitive and now the challenge for content writers is are they publishing it to get read mm. then they have to write things in a way that it gets read yeah. and that's where it's the it's the biggest dilemma that content creators like me have who started writing to to get ideas to share ideas but now uh if i build up a certain reader base and they expect certain kind of content from me and that's what changes the dynamics so much because i never start writing to uh to uh to appease uh, yeah. my readers <laughs> i was only writing to to share my ideas and write about you know what i think about product strategy and that was mainly the domain i stick to till till date uh, but now i get a lot of feedback from my subscribers I can see it in the likes and comments what kind of content do people like and yeah. not like and it sort of plays with your mind right yeah yeah you cannot get out of it and then you think okay this time I write it about this and did not go well <laughs> maybe I should go back to writing about that topic but then really am I doing what I uh, started uh, with yeah the essence yeah that's that's basically now the dilemma for all content writers unless you blatantly say that hey I'm writing for my readers I don't care yeah if you're that content writer then okay problem solved because just from a mindset perspective but for me it's a bit of both and i'm still trying to figure out how much am i writing that makes sense versus how much am i writing that makes sense to my readers and i hope both both are not two different things yeah i was going to ask that because you you very distinctly said i started creating content because i wanted to it was more so from personal growth right depth in whatever you were doing at like your career yeah. and probably you enjoyed it as well Yeah. And now you've gotten to a point where that is still the case. You probably still want to align in ideas and get better at what you do. 
and now you have an audience with expectation. And as yeah. the number grows, the expectation gets bigger. And yeah. all of a sudden, when you put out an article that people don't enjoy, then you see that in the numbers, and that might just hit kind of the confidence yeah. and the motivation as well. Yeah, that's a hard. It's a kind of scale. It's a hard one. Yeah. Um, a recent example, a couple of weeks back, was um, I. I wasn't feeling for many months. I wasn't feeling to. I mean, we talked about this empowerment, right? Yeah. It's a word thrown around a lot. Some books have been written on it. So I, I wrote about my ideas about why um, uh, you know there's a trend about uh, certain uh, things which started as best practices. They became almost like a cult. Mm. uh when it came to the i mean every every uh, uh skill set has a a cult thinking in the way that this is how you do marketing yeah uh this is how steve jobs does marketing that's a cult thinking yeah yeah and maybe in tech you know now there are uh, some great practices coming out of some leaders so this is how the cto cto of stripe does it yeah, yeah? so and this is what i call cult thinking because people start thinking that if this guy does it or this person does it then this is how it would work out in my company and i wrote about uh, this uh, thought i had about marty kegan uh, who's the writer of inspired and 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 empowered and i and i just wrote about that you know the intent uh, of that book and his writings is is great but people have converted it into a cult yeah and people should actually think for themselves what works in their company uh, but just use it as a best practice and I got so much feedback and personal comments, uh, not not personally on me, but directly to me on my email that, hey, I should not write about some somebody's practices and stuff mm. like that. So this is what where it is, right? On in content creation now, if if I write what I like to say, yeah, then I should also be ready to uh, to have the implications of that. Yeah, to get the maybe, feedback. Yeah, to get feedback, and that may be like uh, not so good, uh, but. at least i'm happy that i'm sticking to uh writing the way i started even after thousands of subscribers etc right so yeah. but it's but it's a hard challenge i would say yeah i, I think it's i think it's admirable to uphold your values right yeah. to be like okay this, this these are my ideas and yeah. that's what they are they're not right or wrong yeah. it's it's almost like you own you also have your kind of cult following and they expect you to behave <laughs> in a certain way you're right it's like in a weird way <laughs> and Funny thing is, we we talked about kind of a book. There's no one way book no. to kind of um, show you how some things are done within an organization, within product, even within software development. But the funny thing is, just just by virtue of you writing about it, also people do take that book and are like, yeah. "This is the holy grail. This is the book. Yeah. This is yeah. going to show me how it's yeah. done." Yeah. And I agree with you that that is not kind of how I think. That is not how I think people should think. They yeah. should use that as information and it can kind of anchor yeah. yes. in information bias and they can help it form their perspective. Always. But the context matters so so much. Always. Yeah. Yes. So then to hear people say no no no, you shouldn't <laughs> you shouldn't write that's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yes. a hard one. Yes. And I I fully can empathize with you because also for the podcast people are like oh if you do this and this your podcast might be mm. bigger. Yes. Might be better. <clears throat> might grow a bigger audience. Mm. And I really like doing whatever I want, whatever yeah. interests me. Yeah. And that the problem is, this is my personal challenge, mm. it's a lot. Yes. And I I think still if I enjoy whatever I'm doing, I hope that people will enjoy it. And that yeah. is kind of my mantra. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's how it should be uh as well. Yeah. Um uh, and I think being your authentic self is is kind of getting more difficult nowadays mm. uh, because the feedback loops are quicker people just tell you what they want to see or you can see what other successful newsletter writers and podcasters are doing and you yeah. may want to do that but but it's it takes a lot of effort to stick to your uh, authentic self yeah. yeah nowadays more than previously i would say yeah even even subconsciously right you yeah. might be like is is this this is what i am but it might be just based on anchored feedback that you got. Yeah. I think what helps and this is my assumption mm. is just keeping your network, right? Yeah. Your your fellow content creators or the people within your domain, within your organization or the people close in relationship wise, they can give you that feedback also if they're interested in whatever you're doing. Mm. They might just be kind of your your grounding point. Yes. to touch base with. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, your your closest circle is is always important. I would even say personal uh, your 
I mean, your partner or your family also sometimes play a role in encouraging you to stick to why you started uh, and stick to, you know, because I think more than anyone else, uh, your your uh, your personal circle sees why you started something. Yeah. Uh, and they see the motivations that, you know, your professional circle might not have seen. Yeah. So I think it's always good to go back to your roots. Uh, and when I say roots, it it... it Mostly it's honest friends and honest family members that can tell you, hey, this is your ground. This is why you started. Yeah. And whenever you're too high, they can get you back to the ground and say, okay, this is why you started, right? So I think you should have a good circle. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. love that. When you're too high, they bring you, they, <laughs> they ground you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you fall down, they're there to support yes. you. Yes. That's the, absolutely. That's the best part. Yes. Cool, man. I've yeah. really, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. This was, was a blast. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. I uh, I think um, uh, as as a fellow content creator to another, I think I, I really enjoyed sharing uh, some of these nuances and uh, just dilemmas, right, that we all have when yeah. it comes to content creation and how it connects to your careers and your day-to-day uh, -day work life, right? So great conversation loved it absolutely great conversation thank yeah. you so much for coming on and sharing thank you so much patrick one final thought is this kind of similar to the other podcast you've done <laughs> uh no actually no. Yeah? this was this was different uh, uh and i don't even know how much time you've spent completely lost track of time <laughs> and that's only a good indication uh, if yeah. you've lost track of time i'm not looking at my watch so uh, love the, the, the honest discussions and also just being here in the moment. Uh, we, uh, uh, the, a lot of uh, podcast experiences have been uh, very virtual and not so personal with, with less personal connect, but this has been great. So, so thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Yes. I, I fully agree with you. I, I love the in-person dynamic. I think you have a depth of knowledge and it was just a pleasure to learn from at this side of the table. So thank you. Pleasure to share it. Thank cool. you so much. I'm going to round it off here. I'm going to put all Pandan's socials in the description below. Reach out to him. Let him know you came from our show. And with that being said, thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next one.